Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, and also your host. Thanks so much for coming back to the show and checking in. I love the amazing feedback and responses I've been getting on Instagram, on Facebook, through email. It's just so good to hear from you and to hear what you like, what you like less, what you'd like to hear on the show. And I'm still waiting on some responses from last week's episode because that's something completely new that we've done here. So if you haven't yet, please do reach out to me and let me know what you are enjoying and what you'd like to hear more. In the meantime, enjoy the new Avinu Malkinu that I just released on Mote Shabbos. Stay tuned for more updates on my music video, on future episodes, and if you'd like to be interviewed on the show, please do reach out. Have a Gmar Chasimatova, and for this month, we will be releasing the episodes on Thursday to accommodate the Yamim Tovim. And here's the show. Today on the show with us, we have Linda Dubin-Garfield. A Philadelphia-based artist, mom, and grandmom. Welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you. So I heard so many amazing things about you. You've created lots of platforms and opportunities, not just for yourself, but other artists as well. So we're super excited to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, so I'll give you the mic. Feel free to start with how your upbringing was. How did you find art in your life? What was your education like? So wherever you'd like to start. I uh, grew up in Philadelphia. I wanted to be an artist since I was um, eight years old. And I went to art classes and I majored in art in high school. And when it came time for college, this was in the very early 60s. And my parents said no to art school or art major because of the drugs and the hippies and it was not gonna be for their daughter. So I went to Temple and I majored in English and took whatever art classes were available on the main campus because at that time, Tyler, the art school was in Elkins Park. It wasn't on the main campus. And then when I um, graduated and started working and I moved into Center City into my own apartment, I started taking courses at Fleischer or wherever, you know, so that I would was always taking art. And I wasn't like um, any particular art. I would take what was available for the time that I could do it or something that sounded interesting. So I took pottery, I took uh, sculpture, I took painting, I took drawing. And then I got married and moved to the main line and very soon started taking courses at the Mainline Arts Center. I took photography and I took a couple other things. And then in the very early 90s, I took printmaking and that was it. I found my passion. I loved it. I went to study with Tony Rosati at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. He was the teacher of some of the teachers that I had. So I wanted to have him. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. And about three or four years into doing the art, my teacher said, why don't you try mixed media? I think you would really like it. You would combine it with the, the printmaking. 
And I took a class and I really like that too. So I've incorporated that many, many times in my work to get the image that I really want. Okay, so let me just stop you here for a bit. Can you elaborate yeah. for those of us who are not so familiar with what printmaking is or mixed yeah. media? I would be happy to. So printmaking means that you have some kind of matrix. It can be plexiglass, it can be copper plate, it could be anything that you're going to be able to put ink on in some kind of way. And then you're going to put a piece of paper on top of it and put it through a press. And the pressure of the press is going to take the ink and transfer it to the paper. So there's all different ways to do it. You can etch it, which means that you, you do certain things to it, and then you put it in acid, and, and it eats away at the patterns that you make. You can cut out wood so that some of the wood is higher and some of the wood is lower, and when you put ink on it, it will print the higher part. You can do all different kinds of things. The kind that, and I've done all of them, really, at least once, except lithograph. I never did that, which is on stones. And I'm not even exactly sure how they do it. But the one that I like the best is called monotype. And that is, I use a piece of plexiglass, different sizes, depending on what I want to do. I put the ink on it and put it through the press. And then I do layers so that I get the depth of color or or I put collage on it. So if I collage another piece of paper on it, it becomes a mixed media. Or I could say it's a monotype with collage, but it's if you're using more than one type of material, then you can call it a mixed media. So sometimes I use um, ink, I use collage, I use uh, crayons, or I use colored pencils, that would be a mixed media that you're putting, you're combining the different things to get the effect that you want. Wow. Okay, so really basic, might be even a stupid question, but you find this passion. It sounds extremely niche. How do you monetize this? Or if that's really a naive question to ask, where do you go from that? Okay, so... What happened with me is that I worked for 38 years in the Philadelphia school system. And for 33 of those, I was a guidance counselor. The last nine years, I was at the High School for Creative and Performing Arts, where I told people, follow your passion. If you want to try to be the actor, the musician, the dancer, so you give it five years or 10 years or whatever and see what happens. And then if you, you could always become the doctor or the lawyer, you know, after, but if that's what you really want. So when I retired, I said, I'm going to follow my own advice. I want to be an artist. So I became an artist. I went uh, with the Mainline Art Center and my teacher, Francine Shore, to Mexico with 12 women. I was the only one that did not call myself an artist. I would call myself a hobbyist. I would say I'm a former counselor who likes to do art, but I never said I was an artist. But when I came back from that trip, I said, I am an artist. So I made cards. I took my maiden name back. I wasn't really using it before, Linda Dubin Garfield. I made cards, Linda Dubin Garfield artist. I went to the Espresso Cafe in the Northeast, which is a restaurant that had nothing on the 
walls. And I said, hey, you know, I could have an art show here and I'll give you 10% of whatever I sell. And he said, great. So this was like in January. I said, okay, maybe after Pesach we'll do it. No, no. He said, let's do it in two weeks. You know, I want to do it now. So I got together all the things that I had made, and which weren't really framed for gallery showing, were framed to be in my house, but I put them all up and I made postcards and sent them out and I sold 11 things. That was the beginning. Wow. So I said, now I want to sell to strangers. So how do I do that? So I was still taking courses at the Mainline Art Center and I would do a lot of research online. And I would say, hey, you really have to join in liquid or we should, you, you want to have a show, they're having a show, you can apply to this place or this is, and I was just on the line a lot looking up information and sharing it with people and they didn't really listen to me. So I had been an educational consultant after I got my doctorate and I worked, you know, I did some private things for different organizations and things. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to be an art consultant and talk to, about the business side of art. And how did I get to know a lot of those things? From all the volunteer work I did for Amit. I've been involved with Amit for 40 some years. And I was the president of the board for many years. And I had to do the PR and I had to do the, the press releases. And I had to, you know, get the people to come and do all this stuff and all those skills that I used for them, I started using for myself. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to start smart business consulting and people will pay, they'll listen to me. And sure enough, I would give a, a lecture or I would give a workshop and people are taking notes and writing it down and doing what I said, because now I, you know, had a title. And um, the other thing that I did was in that it was a very lonely life. You know, when you're an artist and you're in your studio, you don't have colleagues really. And I'm very close to my sisters and we talk, but neither one of them is an artist or interested in art that much. And I had a friend who was an artist and I said to her, you know, you're like my art sister. Because when I talk, we, we get it. You know, we know we, what we want and we can support each other. I said, we should start a group. So we did, we started a group called Art Sisters in 2006 which is now in its 13th year. I made a bat mitzvah actually last year for us. And there's 25 of us. We keep it at 25. So one person just moved, we'll add another person or two. And um, we support each other and the community through art. So if somebody needs help or if somebody wants to know something and we know how to do it, you share and you tell. Wow. And are these women Jewish or it's open some, to everyone? Some, it's open to everyone. Some, I would say, I don't even know, I have to really count it. I would say at least half are Jewish and it might be more, but you know, it's a mix and we don't care, you know, like that's not really the main part of it. It's more, you know, are they serious about art and, and do they give back to the community? We always give to nonprofits. We arrange uh, you know, like some somebody is going to benefit from the sale of our arts besides the artists. Wow. And that's part of our, our mission. So if you were helping an artist and they needed help pricing out their artwork, what what is your strategy for that? Okay. So if that's a really complicated question because it depends. 
if you are just starting out, then you have to make the price enough so that you don't feel like uncomfortable or that you're not getting enough for your time and energy. But you're not Picasso, so you can't expect like thousands or millions. You have to think what's reasonable. So you start at low, and if you sell four or five things at a certain price, then you can raise it and say, okay, so next year. So, so how I do it now is that it's $2 a square inch plus at least 100 or 200, whatever it costs for the uh, pr framing. So let's say a 12 by 12 is like 288. So I round it up to 300. And then it costs at least $100 to frame. So I make it $400. That's how I get to it. But when I started out, I don't know whether I was doing 12 by 12s, but I it was cheaper. So let's say an eight by 10, which now I would charge 350. When I first started a long time ago was like 180, but it's, it's hit or miss. Now, when sometimes when I'm very active in Da Vinci Art Alliance, which is an organization for um, artists in South Philadelphia. And when we have a member show, there's a great variation on pricing. It's not, you know, everybody sort of makes their own hegemon and their own decision about how they want to, what they want to charge. And sometimes I'll say to somebody, that's not enough. You know, it's a huge painting that takes you hours to make and you're not charging enough. Or one time I asked a, a woman who was doing works on paper, the same size that I charged 400, she was charging 800. And I said, don't you think that's a little expensive? And she said, well, I'm in this gallery in North Jersey and that's what they charge. So I have to charge the same. I said, you're right. You have to have consistency. You can't charge something in one place and then something else in another. So, you know, it, it's complicated. It, it is a complicated thing. And sometimes if people buy more than one, then, you know, I give them a discount. If they, they're gonna buy a couple and then, you know, I'll say, okay, I could give you 20% off or something like that. Right. It's, so you work with the people to, you know, sell your work. It's very interesting because we talk a lot with other artists on the show. And I find one of the main differences with performing artists versus visual artists or someone who creates a product is that there's some sort of value to you purchase materials. Forget about the art, the hours, the talent, right? But right. the fact that you're you're getting a physical product at the end or somebody has some sort of physical something to show for it. Somehow people find it so much easier to pay for that than just for a brand name for someone to come and speak or sing or dance. Right. So right. you might have this advantage here because you say, you know, just the frame costs $200. Exactly. But the thing is that a lot of times people don't want to pay for the artist's time. Well, you know, of course, <laughs> that, that we, we get across the, the board, right? The board. Because really, some of these things take hours and hours and hours. And when you add it up, and if I'm only getting $400, it's like I'm making $3 an hour, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't really compute completely. But, but when you're doing, I mean, thank goodness, I am not counting on my art 
um, career to pay my bills now. I'm, I worked for the school system. I have a pension and I have some savings and I want to cover my costs if I can, but most years I don't really even do that. Right. So my, right. Hus- my husband says it's because I spend too much money. Well, it's a very common issue that artists have. Eventually, they downgrade and their goal is just to cover their costs and they're not even able to accomplish that sometimes and identify with that a lot. I am truly curious as a guidance counselor and as someone who has been in education for so long, because there are two things. One is education and raising the next generation of good human beings, real human beings. And then the second part of education is people are spending money or at least, you know, that's the idea. You go to college or university, you spend money, you get a degree. And the assumption is, or the hope is that that degree could provide for you, provide for your family. And the way you're speaking right now, you, you, you just said, thank God I'm not relying on this to support myself and I have a pension. But if you are advising young people to pursue their arts when their parents would rather them go into accounting or become lawyers, how do you justify that? So the thing is that when you're young and when you, before you're married or before you have children, you have much more flexibility You can go to New York and try to get on Broadway and live cheaply, be a waiter or whatever, and really focus on the art part. Or you can, if you're a visual artist, a lot of visual artists will teach art part-time or do something like graphic design or something in the art-related field to make money. But that's not the focus of their life. The focus is still making the art and seeing if they can make it as a career. But uh, it's hard, it's very hard. Now, I know young artists who are doing that. They have made a commitment to do art and they they teach at several different art schools in the area and and, cobble together some kind of of work. And, and then their focus, though, is having shows and, sh- and doing their work and selling their art and getting into galleries, which is a hard thing to do. Right, so right. It, it is. It's difficult to be an artist. But if it's something that you really want, you really have to, I think, try it because otherwise you, you never know. You never know. And you might have that lucky break or you might meet that right person that's going to really help you you know, get ahead or get into a museum or get into a show or have a concert or whatever it is that you're trying to do. And in your experience, what, what is that made it point for an artist? In your experience with people who you've associated yourself with, mm-hmm. have you seen artists who have seen success? And, and the success is, can be on so many different levels. It's totally subject now. Exactly. It is. It's what you want. And that's, that's one of the first Objective. things that I, I do is what is your goal? Different people have different goals. Some people do the art and they don't even show it. They don't care about other people seeing it, which always interests me. Why did I want to, you know, see, not only have them see it, but buy it. That was like important to me, but for some people it isn't. 
And uh, the first thing is that you have to figure out what your goals are. And for the people who really want to have a career in art or really want to be recognized or have their art sold, they do different things than the person who just wants to make the art and doesn't care about that. So let's assume the artist wants to sell their art and be recognized and actually make some money from their art, not just cover their costs. Have, have you encountered artists who are able to accomplish that who yes. are not Picasso? They're, they're, they are, but they're not just selling their art. They're also doing art classes or something else that brings in a little bit of money. And then they're focusing on the artwork and then they sell their artwork and are making ends meet. I don't know whether they're rolling in dough, so to speak, but they are, you know, working and living as an artist. Right. So I think it's a challenging, it's a challenging decision to make because, you know, you want to follow your passion, but it's, uh, it's hard because it could take a long time until you do get to the point where you are making ends meet or you have to supplement it with other kinds of jobs. Right. I think it's an important thing to establish that when advising people to pursue their arts, making it very clear to them that they will probably have to supplement with teaching or some other types of jobs that don't have to be related to their art, but that that is a career form or a lifestyle that they are committing to if that's what they want to truly pursue. I think so. I think that's what happens, especially in the early years, until you get established, until you have followers or people who are buying your art, or until you're known enough that, you know, people look for you and buy buy enough so that you could uh, pay your bills. Right. So I saw a beautiful book that you have published, created, uh, those photographs. Mm. that you uh, you went to Europe and you took you used the old photos from the war I I guess they're public domain photos and then you took the photos for at the same locations and then you did a layover on them so you have that could you talk more about this project what inspired you Tell us more about A that. lot of my art is inspired by travel. My husband and I have been very fortunate in the last number of years. We've traveled a lot. And every place I go, I think of things that strike me and I come home and I make a series about it. So we went to Vienna, Prague and Budapest in 2007, I think it was. And I have never really been in a place that that I felt the Holocaust as much as I felt in these cities. That uh, I felt like the, the people were ghosts in the streets. I could feel the, the sadness. I hated Vienna. I mean, it's a beautiful city. I hated it. It was just too Nazi-ish. Like, I just couldn't take it. So I took pictures in all the places and I said, I'm gonna do something about the Holocaust when I get home. So, I went, actually, they're not public domain pictures. I went to the museum, the um, Holocaust Museum in, in Washington has online thousands and thousands of photos. And I went to the different places that where I was, like in Prague 
and in Budapest and in Vienna and found images that I had to pay for to use and put on there that these are from the museum, but they don't say that it's, you know, that they approve of them because maybe somebody would buy them and use them in a horrible way. But I used those images to create art that spoke to me about what was going on there. So in Budapest, for example, where the Holocaust Memorial are these iron shoes along the Danube where they shot the people and threw them into the river. I made, I took a picture of that and I made the water red and I took pictures of people who had been from Budapest and died in the Holocaust and I put their pictures like showing up through the red on the water. And I did all these different kinds of layovers. I didn't know how to do that, actually. I had, I really just sort of got used to an iMac, but I went to the Apple store and they showed me how to layer and how to use Photoshop. I didn't really know how to use it, but I learned to do this book. It was very important to me. And actually, uh, Hani Levine helped me. She was one of my editors and she, you know, read it over a number of times and helped me with the text of the book. Yeah, she's actually the one who showed it to me <laughs> and introduced me to you. Yes, yes. So th that's a beautiful project. It seems like your Jewish soul is definitely portrayed through your art and through your passion for creating masterpieces. Thank your, you. Your pieces. <laughs> yeah. My Jewish history is a little interesting, too, because I was raised in a conservative, very minimally religious house. We belonged to a synagogue and I was confirmed when I was 16, but my parents never went and I was not really that interested. And my parents always taught me everybody's the same and treat everybody with respect. And then when I was 16 and said I wanted to date this Unitarian boy, they went crazy. No, you can't, <laughs> you can only date Jewish boys. So Jewish boys would pick me up and I would meet Steve around the corner because he was the one I wanted to go out with. So, I mean, it was a, a childhood romance and it didn't uh, last forever, but I would go out with Jews or non-Jews. It didn't really matter to me until I was 26, maybe I'd been dating this guy for two years and in the heat of an argument, he called me a dirty Jew. And I was stunned because I would never, I never thought of anything about his culture or background or whatever that I would have used as a negative against him. So I broke up with him and I said to my girlfriend, let's go to Israel. Because if I had to describe myself in 10 adjectives, I don't know if Jewish would have made the top 10. So let's go see what is this Jewish? What does it mean? So we took a Hebrew course at the Y to practice so that we would know a few Hebrew words and we get ready to go and there was this guy that came to the class because he had made Aliyah and then came back and wanted to keep up his Hebrew so when he would we would have a break he would come and talk to the teacher so then my girlfriend and I go on this tour and we're in Israel and she has a date and I'm with the old people from the King David Hotel and I see this guy from my class, you know, that was coming to talk to the teacher. 
I yell out, shalom, shalom. And I go to, he said, I'm here with two friends. So I went out into the uh, lobby and there was a blonde kid and a dark haired kid. And the blonde kid and I have a disagreement in about five minutes. You know, he said something, I disagreed with him. We are arguing. And the other guy is sweet and quiet and has a nice smile. Four months later, I get a phone call. Hello, this is Norman. I met you in Israel. I said, Norman who? He thinks till this day that I made that up. But I didn't know. I said, you know, I, I was busy. He said, um, so I said, okay, we'll go, you know, let's meet. So we met and it was the blonde. I said, which one are you, the blonde or the dark haired one? He said, the blonde. I said, oh, all right, let's give it a, <laughs> let's give it a try. And sure enough, I married him. And we've been married now for 46 years. So, you know, something's working. And uh, <laughs> we still argue plenty, plenty. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. And both of us had had experiences that we wanted to have more Judaism in our life. So very, very fortunately, it is one of the best things that ever happened to me is connecting with Rabbi Levine and Hani Levine, who we went to for every holiday for two years, every holiday, and sometimes just on Shabbos. And I learned all of the minhags that we have are theirs because we didn't have any. So everything we do is the minhag from the Levines. And uh, it's a blessing. It's a blessing on me and my children. And now even my grandchildren have a relationship with them. And it it's the best thing ever that ever happened to me. Wow. And I was the only one in my family that was religious. So it was a little tricky, but they kept like a couple pots for me when I would come and I would have most of the things here, but we didn't really do the holidays together so much. They didn't want a long Seder. They didn't, you know, they didn't really come for Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. So I was basically isolated from them. I would make Thanksgiving. That's a big, important holiday because everybody could drive here. But about 10 years ago, my sister's son became religious. And then she decided she better get with the program or else he's never going to come and eat in her house. And now she and her husband and her daughter and her son and their families are all religious. So we go there for Pesach, which is very exciting. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just, and the other sister lives in Rhode Island and she's not religious. And I said, don't be so sure. It's not over. You don't know. You (laughs) might, could happen. It could happen. So uh, it's just, you know, been an addition to my life that uh, has been very fortunate. that's so beautiful beautiful. thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story really being open with us if you have any closing remarks now would be a perfect time Uh, just that you know it is a good thing to follow your dream and to be uh you know doing things that you like to do and that way you're just happy i'm very lucky i i pinch myself to think my goodness here i am finally doing art and living an artist's life. And this is what I always wanted. So I'm yeah. very, very fortunate. That is very fortunate. I am so blessed and grateful to be in a similar position where, yes, the monetary part doesn't really 
bring in that validation or that support, but the happy and fulfilling feelings that come with doing what you love uh, makes up for it, I guess. Right. So, And then there's, there's enough, like there's little dribs or drabs. Somebody sees something, they buy it. Somebody sees your work online, they call you, they, you know, I'm sending four pieces to a woman who works for an architecture firm and she's the art consultant that saw me came across me online and she's taking four pieces of my new work. I'm very excited. So, you know, different things like that happen now. I mean, I'm, it, it's nice to get that money, but it's not enough because it doesn't happen like every day or every week even, but you know, it happens enough that, you, that I feel some kind of validation. So beautiful, really wholesome. It's nice to speak to someone like you. Well, thank you. <laughs> You don't regret your life decisions, you know? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Okay, so thank you so much, Linda, for coming well, on the thank show. You. I'd like to thank our sponsors. ShopDrop is an iPhone app that lists every sample sale in New York. So if you want to buy designer clothes without breaking the bank, go to your iPhone and download the ShopDrop app today. And as always, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show. And if you aren't on iTunes, go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps us tremendously. It helps new people find the show thanks to your reviews. So thank you so much for being such an integral part of growing this show. See you next time. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.